Welcome to Talking Kotlin. On this episode, I'm sitting down with the awesome Cedric discussing what is happening on the language front. Hello, Cedric, and welcome to the show. Hello, Hedy. Thank you for having me back. Yeah, it's great. And in fact, uh, I have to tell you that you are the first, I think, if I'm not mistaken, yeah, you are the first repeat guest that I've had on Talking Kotlin. I am very surprised to hear that because I know you've been cranking a lot of episodes and I thought by then you would have a repeat guest by now. Yeah, no, I I, I actually, so do, so did I, uh, but I've, I've tried to kind of stray away from that, uh, but I always really, really enjoy talking to you and I said, I, I have to bring you back and and I know that you've been on the language uh, front for, for many years, so I thought, you know, let, let's bring Cedric back and let's discuss how Kotlin has been evolving and what your thoughts are on it, etc. So once again, thank you for coming back on the show. Well, that's very kind of you. And uh, yeah, I'm always excited to talk about Kotlin. How long have you been actually involved in Kotlin in the sense of working with Kotlin as a language? <laughs> that goes way back. Um, I think uh, I, I traced back my very first blog post on Kotlin around 2010 or 2011. Uh, I think pretty much when JetBrains announced it. Um, and so I assumed that by by then they had been working on it for maybe a, a year or so. So it was still very, very early on and uh, uh, obviously very unstable, very far from the Kotlin we know uh, today. But um, at the time I had already been, uh, I guess, exploring a lot of languages. I was looking for the next Java and I had been playing with a lot of other languages uh, such as Scala and uh, Gosu and Fan or slash Phantom. And, and every time I came across one of these for a little while, I got excited. And then, uh, you know, the more I tried to use them and I kind of fell out of love and decided, okay, this is not quite yet the next Java that I'm looking for. But as soon as I saw uh, Kotlin, even in the shape that it was in back then, uh, I felt that uh, JetBrains was really onto something, so um, I got very excited. So I think uh, at the time I was just uh, keeping an eye on it, and uh, I don't think I was really using it, more like just reading the documentation, reading the, the patch release, and seeing version after version. Uh, and then I started blogging pretty regularly about it uh, in 2011, 2012. I don't know, I could do some uh, archaeology and going back through my blog posts at the time. Um, yeah, because I remember, I mean, you were very, very early on, right? And and. It's interesting that you say that you had tried so many languages because when we made the announcement, the general immediate reaction was, first of all, wait a minute, you folks are tool vendors, you make IDEs, how dare you even, uh, you know, think about doing something like a programming language, you know, leave that to, to the grown-ups, right? Uh, and, and the second one was, why does the world need another language? So you that had tried Phantom and, and, and Scala, and I don't know, you didn't mention Ceylon, but I'm guessing that maybe you had played with Ceylon as well. You know, when we first came out with, with Kotlin, rightfully so, many people could say, well, this just seems like an aggregate of existing features of other languages. So what made you actually think, oh, you know, they're onto something? Yeah, so it's interesting that these uh, these two aspects that you said were actually kind of discouraging people, or at least making people critical of the idea of Kotlin, actually made me excited. Um, so first, the fact that it was a tool vendor, and especially JetBrains, that was uh, tackling this problem was actually a big relief for me, because, uh, like I said, so I think at the time I had played with Scala, Gosu, and Fan, uh, and these three languages had you know, a few interesting things going for them, but they all shared 
the what I think is a crippling uh, disadvantage, which is none of them really had good ID support. Um, and even at the time, I uh, can't imagine what Scala ID support was in 2010. Uh, and I think, uh, as far as I remember, Gosu, I think, had an Eclipse plugin. Uh, Phantom had nothing at all. So the, uh, the two brothers were doing Phantom were just using Emacs. Um, so suddenly I'm thinking, well, all right, so at least I know these guys are going to uh, be working on the language and the ID support at the same time, which I think is just an, a non-negotiable part of creating a new language today. Uh, if you want to be credible, if you want that language to have a, a shot, and if you want to show that you have some respect for your users, uh, you need to start working on this right away. Uh, at the very least, you need to make your compiler and all the tool chain uh, toolable. As it, you know, there need to be entry points so that other people can inspect what you're doing, inspect what the compiler is doing, so that even if you would not be writing the ID yourself, you can actually give a chance to other people to do it. So I knew that JetBrains was going to be an stellar at that for sure. Um, and the other aspect was just the, uh, the, the functionalities and the way JetBrains was approaching this. Um, for those of you who remember what the documentation looked like at the time, um, every single page of documentation on all the various functionalities that were available at the time were closed uh, at the bottom of the page with uh, a bunch of references. And a lot of these references were pointing to uh, features of other languages or also chapters or sections in the effective Java book saying, you know, this is the rationale. This is why we think this feature is important uh, or equally important. This is why we decided not to include this feature or this is why we decided to implement this way and not implement it that way. Uh, and I, I thought that part was really super fascinating to me because it showed, uh, first of all, the reasoning behind the, the, the the teams in our mind and how they wanted to approach language design. Uh, and it was also very refreshing, very you know, brutally honest. And uh, you could not like uh, a certain feature, but you cannot disagree with the rationale and the decision that went behind it. Uh, so this is one of the two reasons that really piqued my interest right away. And I thought I need to you know, keep track of what these guys are doing because I think they're probably onto something. Yes, I mean that's that's valid points, and and appreciate that that you say that you know because we, at all times, it's always been trying to keep in line with what we've done essentially at JetBrains with the tooling, right? Which is try and look at mundane, repetitive tasks that you end up doing and try and solve them in in a kind of I don't, I, I hate to use the word pragmatic, but in a pragmatic way. So, and from very early on, it was mentioned that. You know, we are not trying to investigate new ways of doing things or, you know, in the, in the uh, you would say, academic way of, of what certain languages are doing. And I think to date, probably about the only new aspect that Kotlin has brought to the table is the, the lambdas with receivers, right? Because I think mm -hmm. essentially everything else is already existing in, uh, in other languages. So, yeah, fair point. Yes, but when it comes to languages, you know, we all have uh, a list of you know, things that we think we really want in that language uh, that we think are non-negotiable and then things that are I'd, I'd like to have them, but they are negotiable. Uh, and I think in the past, when the years that you know, preceded uh, me stumbling across Kotlin, I had kind of narrowed down on the kind of features and functionalities that I wanted in a language. And, uh, and what I, I think that Scala, Gosu, and Phantom hit a lot of these correctly, there were still a few things that were missing. And then I came across Kotlin, and really at the time, I thought when I was reading the, the early specs, I'm thinking, if I had any will to write my own language, uh, 
one day, this well is now gone because I would not operate in Kotlin. This is exactly the language I would design. And it was so close to everything that I wanted, so close to all the pain points that I had identified in Java and that I wanted to you know, have fixed in that hypothetical new language that uh, it kind of, yeah, in a funny way, it made me, all right, I, I don't think I'm going to write a language now because you know every single idea that I wanted, uh, Kotlin has it, and these guys are going to be much faster and much better at writing it than I would be. Ironically, and in a sad way, it's if you look at a lot of the frameworks and libraries that exist on the on the JavaScript in the JavaScript ecosystem, a lot of times what happens is that you have something that does ninety eight percent of what you need. It doesn't do those, you know, that remaining two percent, and someone goes and creates an exact new thing that does everything plus that two percent, <laughs> right? Which is funny because I mean it it does happen, you know. It, it, look at it over and over again, whether it's libraries, frameworks. Uh, package managers, everything. It's its always re repetitive of the same thing. So I'm glad to know that even if, if Kotlin maybe doesn't do that 5% of what you need, you're not going to go and create a new uh, a, a new language there. No, yes, like I said, uh, when you start having a, a list of functionalities you want, you also need to attach to that to each functionality, whether it's uh, super important or nice to have. Uh, and I think in, uh, in that respect, really, I, I can't really think of anything right now that uh, I wish really, really hard that Kotlin had. Uh, I have a few nice to have things maybe, I, and I can't even think of any right now. So this is how close it is to my own vision. Uh, and I'm pretty sure I'm not the only one. I mean, the Kotlin success and the momentum I mean, the past couple of years shows that uh, it's hitting all the right notes for not just me, but a, a whole category of the, the Java and Javian population. Yeah, we're talking about categories. I think we'll come back to categories as well, because that, that's going to touch on something. But one of the things that the goal or the aim was with Kotlin was to try and make it the language uh, keywords or the, the surface area of the language as small as possible, and then try and enhance it with libraries, right? And do you feel that more or less that has been accomplished? So uh, yes and no. I feel that the uh, number of keywords or size of the spec or things like that are not really the, the right metrics to assess you know, whether a language is complex or not. Um, I think famously, uh, Martin Odersky keeps using the, the size of the Scala specification in his keynotes as a, a proof that Scala is not complex. Uh, and I think it's a totally misguided uh, way of doing things because if you start looking at this and if you look at a language like, I don't know, uh, Whitespace, for example, or uh, brain and F, you yeah. know that word, I'm not yeah. sure if I'm allowed to say it on the podcast. Uh, I mean, the specs for these languages fit on one page and they're absolutely impossible to write programs. In. So it's not about the size of the specs, not about the number of keywords. It's really about more uh, the time it takes for programmers, first of all, to absorb uh, the concepts and more importantly, how these concepts interact with each other. Uh, and I think you can have languages that have you know, 100 keywords, which are still quite uh, tractable. And you can have languages that have just five keywords that are actually much more complex to parse. Uh, I guess maybe you know, Lisp would be another example of a, a language that you know, has a very extremely simple syntax, but uh, which can become quite you know, complicated to, to wrap your head around. So I think from that standpoint, you know, Kotlin has definitely succeeded so far because it's really, uh, while it adds a lot of new functionalities over Java, uh, it does that in a gentle way that's you know, even Java programmers who have very little idea of what Kotlin does, they can look at a Kotlin source and infer uh, the functionalities that they're not quite familiar with. And, uh, and a lot of it will still look familiar. I think this is the, this is the big success of Kotlin uh, and the fact that it also has been able to say no to a lot of features, 
which is also a, an important part in language design to be able to turn down features and decide that the complexity that they add is not going to be worth uh, the, uh, the ease of use that this feature would bring. And a difficult one, right? It's not easy to say no. Absolutely, yes. Uh, and especially, you know, as an engineer, especially uh, writing languages is really probably the, the the best time I've had. I did that in college and, and a little bit after that. And I remember of all the projects that I worked in uh, while studying computer science, writing the compiler has always been the most interesting. I don't think this has changed. I think anyone who works in a compiler, uh, regardless of what part of the compiler they're working on, you have so many interesting problems, so many ways that you can always improve things that uh, it's, a, it's a never ending quest of you know, pleasure for an engineer. So it's very easy to get carried away. And certainly when you get someone who suggests, oh, maybe we should have this feature and implement it this way to get excited and say, all right, I'm going to you know, write a prototype right away and see what it looks like. But obviously, uh, it's a lot more complicated than that because each new feature that you add uh, interoperates. You know, there's a, a factorial effect there. If there were N features before and you add one, now you need to make sure that that new feature interoperates with the previous N in ways that you can understand and you can test and that you can maintain for the future. And obviously, as the language grows, uh, this becomes an impossibly complex problem to solve. Yeah, and I think that that's why that any kind of language really needs to be driven by what you would call the benevolent dictatorship, right? Because there is no way that you could do this by committee. And a lot of times when people submit things, you know, they don't think about what you just said, which is all of the ways that this new feature could potentially interact with other language features. Most of the time, it's just about, I need this for this particular use case for me, please go and add it, right? You know, actually, I think I disagree with that. Uh, I think that having one person, one benevolent dictator uh, at the head of a language is actually dangerous uh, because you have that person who has absolute power, either either veto power or just, you know, enough uh, political weight that they can impose feature just because they think it should be in there. Whereas uh, a committee, or at least you know, a small group of people coming from different backgrounds and different interests, will have a much more calming effect on the features and it's going to be harder to convince all of them to add a feature to a language. So in some way, I think I'd rather have a small group of people, uh, but of course there are counter examples everywhere, right? Uh, so I think, well, unfortunately, I, know I keep harping on Scala, but I think Scala has shown that even with one person at the head, you can still end up with a very complex uh, language, uh, but also you could argue that C++ has the same problem, even though it's, uh, I don't, there is quite a committee behind it and it's turned into a, a very complex language too. But uh, the bar for the new features has become impossibly high for C++. You, know, you really need to convince a lot of people when something needs to be added. And you can be sure that when you want something to be added among all these you know, 10, 20, 30 people who are uh, part of the committee, at least one of them is going to come up with a very, very strong argument against your proposal. So the, it becomes a very, very hard task to add new features when you have more than one person leading the language design. Okay, slightly agree. And, and I guess that there, you know, it, it kind of depends on, on the, the the line of where you draw benevolent and dictatorship here, right? Because, I mean, there are, yes. there are you know, benevolent in my, in my sense is that, you know, you, you do listen to reasoning, you do listen to what everyone is saying. And, you, and just like, in a way, you have as much say as everyone else that is that is proposing something. But at some point, a decision has to be made, uh, which is kind of the way I view it. But I, I, I see your point as well there. But the counter of that is that doesn't that potentially lead to uh, stagnation of the language, right? If, if every single time you want to add a feature or remove a feature, you have to have agreement with so many people on, on a steering committee. 
Absolutely, uh, and I think it's uh, well, it's uh, it's part of the maturity process. Uh, and um, you know, I don't necessarily see stagnation of language as a, a negative, assuming that language has achieved the uh, a certain equilibrium in functionalities and, and traction. Uh, and at some point, there is just no point in adding too much to it. So, you know, historically, we know that language is always uh, keep going bigger, but. Uh, I think we can already notice this a little bit with uh, Kotlin. I mean, some of the features being considered for addition are still, there are still some pretty sizable ones. But, uh, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if in five years from now, the Kotlin from five years from now will look quite a bit like the one we have today. Uh, and uh, I think a, a counter example to that or a different path would be C Sharp. And you know, C Sharp has evolved very, very rapidly. Uh, and um, you know, the, the team that is creating C Sharp is also very diligent in adding new features and breaking backward compatibility and offering transition tools for every version. Um, I haven't really kept track with this evolution of C Sharp lately, but I wouldn't be surprised if this also starts slowing down a little bit. I mean, they've been um, adding a few features. I mean, just recently with 7.3, I think they added some some new features as well to, to C Sharp. But it's funny that you mentioned this and, and in terms of you don't feel that stagnation is a bad thing. And just recently, I was reading on a, on a forum, on the Kotlin forum, someone was saying, you know, what is happening with the language? Why is it slowed down? Why are there new, no new features coming out, right? Personally, I felt a little bit like, this is an overreaction. I mean, taking into account that it took us six years to reach a 1.0. And and now it, it's been, you know, you've started this this particular person, I think, that had been using Kotlin for maybe like eight months or something like that. Like, what do you need? You know, and this goes back to to the to what I was talking about initially regarding the did we manage to accomplish the goal of keeping the surface area uh, small and delegating to the libraries because I mean the, the reason I was asking that is that the intention here was to delegate as much functionality as possible to the library in a sense to make the language as uh, quote unquote extensible uh, and you know not have to build in keywords and, and constructs that later on while and I agree with you that it doesn't necessarily, the surface area isn't equivalent to the complexity of the language, but it does add baggage, right? And it's baggage that you're going to have to maintain. And whereas if you're, if you're introducing this functionality with libraries, then it's much easier. Yes, and, uh, it's uh, it's quite interesting because um, so as I said, I don't really feel that you know restless for certain features. You know, I, I can't believe that you know Kotlin still doesn't do this or doesn't do that. Uh, I've been following the language as we discussed, you know, six or for six or seven years. Um, myself, I like I said, I don't have any features that I think is really really missing. But the uh, the reason why maybe that person who you know recently started using that language just a few months ago is coming with this is because they have different expectations and maybe they want Kotlin to be different or with a different goal than it currently is. And they probably come also from a different background and maybe they are more versed in a Haskell or OCaml or you know, Prologue or something like that. And, and they want that new language to you know, embrace some of the features that they're used to. So uh, it's really, a, I, I see this kind of, you know, critic saying that Kotlin is not moving fast enough, not really as a critic of the language itself, but more as a reflection of where that person came from, uh, which doesn't mean that their, their feedback should be ignored. And, um, no, I absolutely far, not. The, yeah. the, the team you know, at, at Kotlin is really, really super open to you know, discussing ideas. And uh, now we have a you know, formal process to offer improvements and things like that. <clears throat> but they're also extremely strict, as they should be, about the uh, the design goals and uh, the purpose of Kotlin and where they want 
Kotlin to be in uh, one year and five years from now. Uh, and especially now that Kotlin has also branched into uh, well, mobile development for Android and uh, switching to also native and with the JavaScript and front end, uh, that's already a lot of balls to juggle. And I can understand that they're going to be extremely conservative if uh, more exotic features are being requested without following the, the proper procedure, which is you know, writing a, a keep and uh, just laying out the kind of scenarios that you think are needed, outlining here is the pain point and here is how my proposal would solve it. And then showing that you've thought about the problem and that you're thinking about how your new feature would interact with the other features pretty you know, reasonably before a, a whole discussion can actually start. Yeah. And thank you very much for saying branching out to mobile development as opposed to, oh, does Kotlin do more than mobile development as, as we usually get, right? <laughs> Yes, yeah, so we can talk a bit about mobile. It's, uh, it's actually, and mobile is a bit more relevant to my work. Uh, but, um, well, uh, as you know, the fact that JetBrains has embraced Android since day one, well, I would say day two. <laughs> yeah, to about be fair, day two or three. Uh, because yeah. what happened is that you know, the JetBrains team started working on Kotlin and uh, people on Android started using it and they started telling uh, JetBrains, well, it's, uh, it works okay, it works fine, but no, here is how we could make it better. And I think you guys should really make you know, Android a part of your test suite and officially support it. And uh, it didn't take a lot of convincing for the JetBrains guys to realize the opportunity they had there. That you know, if they could get the uh, the Android community to embrace Kotlin, it would be a, a good way to bootstrap uh, the whole the whole movement and the whole popularity. Yeah. So tell me, what what is in terms of mobile? Because one of the aspects that we're adding, of course, is this, uh, which isn't obviously only for mobile, but the multi-platform support where you can target you know with a single project multiple platforms what are your thoughts on that how are you seeing it so are you asking about the native or mobile or well i mean i'm asking generally about the multi-platform projects where you can you know you have the actual and expected etc and you can target then multiple platforms uh so it's a little bit just you know mobile is one of those platforms but well, okay. i thought we could lead into uh mobile with that Yes, so um, so yeah, we can talk a bit uh, about mobile. So I'm I'm running a, a mobile organization with a lot of mobile engineers, uh, <clears throat> Android and iOS. So no, obviously Kotlin is only relevant to Android. Um, the um, what I've noticed, and of course I've been you know, pushing and approving the use of Kotlin and the uh, the uh, extended use of Kotlin on our code base. Uh, it it's important for two reasons for me, and I think for anyone who is in charge of you know this kind of <clears throat> large mobile organization. First of all, because you know well, I don't think I need to enumerate all the qualities that Kotlin has over writing things in Java. I think uh, anyone who's listening to this podcast is well aware of that. So for that reason alone, and how easy it is to convert from Java to Kotlin, or to have you know Java and Kotlin coexist next to each other, have source files in the same directory, coexist next to each other, is already a, a big plus. But there is also a, a bigger effect, uh, which is also important for my job in terms of uh, keeping the engineers happy and engaged uh, and excited to work on things that are more bleeding edge. Um, writing mobile apps these days for Android uh, has become a bit mundane. Uh, so granted, it's it's a world that moves fast. There are a lot of you know, new design patterns and uh, Google keeps releasing new interesting things and architectural guidance and suggestions. So. That uh, that world is by no means completely, you know, immobile and, and uh, moving at a glacial pace. But a lot of these engineers are now getting a little bit, you know, burned out by writing Java and getting a bit bored by Java. And so when you tell them that they can actually start writing in Kotlin, then suddenly their work becomes interesting again. 
So not only that, but I think there is also a point that can be made that uh, when you start offering Kotlin to your engineers as a possibility, they're also more likely to stay with you as opposed to going to another company where they're going to be writing yet another app, but oh, they haven't, they haven't adopted Kotlin yet, so you're going to go back to Java. Uh, most people who start working in Kotlin will probably never want to go back to Java, and it's going to uh, dictate how they uh, look for a job and how they look at opportunities. Uh, it's probably one of the first questions they are going to ask future employers. You know, can I, can I, do you guys use Kotlin or Java? And if you, if you say you're using Java, first of all, they're not going to be happy because they don't want to write in Java. But another reason why they might turn you down is because they are thinking, well, I know these guys are still developing you know, mobile software the way we used to five years ago. So I don't really want to go back into that world. Yeah, it's uh, first, first, what language are you using? And then we'll negotiate the salary, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah, it's it's really turning into something like this. So um, admittedly, I'm, I'm in Silicon Valley, so things might be a bit different in the rest of the world. But uh, here, mobile engineers are, you know, there is such a huge demand uh, and, and they have too much to choose from. So they can't afford being picky. Uh, when they say, because, you know, the, the salary, the compensations are all going to be about the same. The kind of work they do will probably going to be about the same. So now you start looking at other discriminating factors uh, and the kind of technologies, whether it's a language or are you using Rx or are you using Dagger or things like that. Uh, there are all kinds of other factors that more and more engineers are really putting in their top list of requirements when they're considering a, a role in your organization. All right. Now, you, you mentioned that you're a mobile organization and, and for Android, it's a given. But going back to multi-platform and targeting multiple platforms, what do you think or what are your expectations? And do you think that the approach that Kotlin is taking in terms of multi-platform projects where I can target Android and iOS is, is going to solve your problems? So that's uh, that's interesting. I think uh, for the native part, there are two different aspects, and they both have different weights. Uh, there is an you know, targeting uh, other platforms and targeting WebAssembly. Um, personally, I'm, I'm I feel a bit more excited about WebAssembly than I am about the rest, but it's just an old personal preference. I think you know, WebAssembly is really super interesting, and it's uh, you know in, in five or ten years from now, we'll we'll remember the days where we do this kind of thing in JavaScript, and we'll laugh and say, yeah, that's uh, those were the early days. So uh, I'm looking forward to seeing the WebAssembly uh, support you know, being extended, uh, and I, I know I know this is happening in full swing. Um, as for native, so I. What I find interesting for native is the fact that Kotlin can be a full stack language, which is used not just on mobile, but also on front end and also on back end. Uh, we already know that, um, but I also see a parallel with the way Swift is doing things. Um, so Swift is a very, very similar language to Kotlin. Uh, they're, they're really brothers for, for everything that I'm, for, as far as I'm concerned. And, uh, and Swift is trying to follow a similar model, except they started on mobile and now they're trying to expand into back end. And I think this is going to be a little bit harder because Apple doesn't seem to be putting as much weight on their efforts to do this on the back end. And they are relying more on the open source and the goodwill of the community. And I don't think this is going to play out very well. So I think Kotlin has a, a pretty strong advantage there. Uh, it has the possibility to turn into a, a universal language that you can use across the stack on mobile, on front end and on back end. And uh, I'm really curious to see how this will develop. But what about your particular case? I mean, do you do iOS development? Yes, we do iOS development, but it's all Swift. Uh, we're, we're not using Kotlin. We're not using any bridging um, functionality like you know, React or Native or Xamarin or all the other six. We, we just do native development for uh, both platforms. Right. And, and let, let's, let's say for a moment that you know, Kotlin native is not released yet. Uh, the tooling isn't quite there yet, etc. But let the, the, day, the day will come eventually when that will happen. 
Do you see yourselves using Kotlin the way it is now to target multiple platforms? Or do you still think that you would continue uh, to use Swift and Kotlin? Well, I, I can definitely see that, you know, technically it would be possible, right? We, we saw a demo in our idea at you know, the Kotlin conference last year. Uh, and I think this there is a lot, also a lot of work there. We can handle you know, Kotlin native applications that are working on iOS. Whether it will be embraced, I think, is going to be the, a bigger problem. I don't think it's going to be a matter of whether Kotlin can technically achieve it. Uh, the problem is that Apple still has the you know, full control over their platform. And if they decide at some point that you know, they see uh, Kotlin taking a little bit more too much momentum uh, and that you know, at the expense of Swift, uh, they will probably try to clamp down and uh, add restrictions to what can be uploaded on uh, iOS and uh, and, and even macOS platforms. So I think the, uh, this would be an uphill battle uh, to make you know, Kotlin the, the de facto or you know, a very popular way to develop applications on iOS. Of course, I'd like to see it personally, but on the other hand, I think it's not completely a bad thing if there's a bit of competition between languages and between platforms. Uh, let's, you know, the, a thousand flowers bloom, like they say. Um, so yeah, so I, I don't think Kotlin will be very successful there, but I'm definitely, you know, I. I've made a lot of predictions that were completely wrong in the past. I'm, a, I'm an engineering person. I'm not a product person. So uh, if you're asking me for engineering questions, I can probably give you a, a pretty educated answer. If you ask me a product question, I'm going to give you an opinion, which you're very, like, very welcome to discard and ignore because it's probably going to be wrong. No, that's absolutely fine. But I would say that the same argument could be made around technologies such as React or Xamarin or, or things like that, right? You know, that it... it at the end of the day, Apple does control the platform and Apple does, you know, if you say that, oh, Apple sees Kotlin as a threat, by the same token, Apple could see uh, React Native as a threat, right, in a sense. Or, or you that's, would... Yeah, that's absolutely true. Uh, that would be consistent with uh, <laughs> with what I'm saying. So I think right now Apple has had a, uh, an attitude of releasing a little bit some of the restrictions they have uh, historically placed on their platform. So that's why we see uh, React Native and we see other technologies and um, other languages on the platform. But I still think that if any of these start you know, casting a shadow over Swift development and over Xcode uh, adoption and uh, use of the standard Apple libraries, I wouldn't be really surprised if Apple decides to go back to their uh, original self and uh, start uh, closing the platform a little bit more. Yeah. Now, in regard to the language itself and outside of multi-platform, uh, there is, I know that you, and, and we initially joked about uh, catching up with, uh, with Cedric and the re reference to the Cardassians. And, and I think the show is called Keeping Up with the Cardassians, no? Um, <laughs> yes. I think that's about as much as I know about this show. Uh, that To the fact that I had to Google Kylie Jenner the other day because I don't know who the who this person was. But uh, Keeping Up with the Keeps, which uh, sounds nice. There are a couple that obviously get, uh, I'm sure everyone is uh, aware what Keep is, which is a Kotlin evolution enhancement process documentation, which is on GitHub about adding new language features and that. Are there any, I mean, there is one that we'll touch on, but are there any that are of interest to you in particular that you're, you know, monitoring to see where, where it goes to towards whether, you know, you're concerned whether it'll be added or you're concerned if it won't be added to the language? Uh, yeah, so, no, so overall, no, I'm not really keeping close track of the keeps, no, only when they get brought up on Slack and whether or not instead they start having enough attention that maybe I should take a look at them. Uh, but there is one that I think I, I started by accident. 
exactly. Uh, where you know, a, a while ago, I made a, a quick proposal to have some kind of ad hoc polymorphism for, for Kotlin. Uh, and I just put together a bunch of notes and I posted this. And um, this uh, proposal received a bunch of comments. And then a few other people decided to try to push this further. So I, by now, what they're offering, what they're proposing has nothing to do with what I was proposing, which had plenty of flaws because I hadn't really thought it through. It was just more of a, a forum post than a, a formal key. You know, key didn't exist at the time. So um, ad hoc polymorphism and, and type classes is something that you know, is of, a, I would say, passing interest to me. Even as I was posting this, I wasn't quite convinced that really Kotlin should have it. It was more of a, hey, let's talk about this. Let's see if we can make something useful out of it, because I think there is a bit of a, a interesting uh, features that can be useful for Kotlin. But I'm also very wary to not go too deep into that. And, uh, and my proposal was flawed in the sense that quite a few people immediately pointed out that you know, there are aspects of this proposal that will not you know, work very well with the, the rest of Kotlin, uh, or that will add a lot of complexity and there will be a lot of corner cases and that can lead to code that will be obscure or that will be hard to compile, which means the compiler will take longer to compile it or that will be hard to optimize. And so there were all kinds of different concerns that I hadn't really thought about it at all, that I hadn't thought about at all. So since then, that this has turned into a real keep, which is being pushed forward by the, the people who developed the uh, Arrow library. Which I think and the I number is uh, keep 87, right? If I'm not mistaken. Keep 87, yeah. I'll take your word. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, so Arrow is a functional library that is the merge of uh, two functional libraries. And it was uh, really you know, exciting to see these two very, very talented teams of developers decided to put aside that difference and merge. Um, so they're the ones who are pushing very hard uh, the functional aspect of, uh, of Kotlin. Uh, and they're the ones who are now driving this, uh, this key, which you know, has been in development for quite a while now with a lot of iterations and a lot of discussions. Yeah, the ticket or the, the issue on GitHub is quite lengthy now. So I'm I'm keeping track of it because I, I like the, uh, I would say the academic aspect of it. And it's interesting to, to force my brain into thinking and looking at things in a different way. Uh, but I think it's, for me, it's reached a point where I'm, I'm a bit uncomfortable because I think it's, uh, it violates some of Kotlin's design principles in terms of, of simplicity. Uh, and I understand the, the abstraction level that it gets us. And um, I'm still having, beginning to have doubts that whether the, we don't have, we're not beginning to hit um, diminishing returns with this. Whereas, you know, we get a few features, but we might be losing a lot of the simplicity that you know, has made Kotlin very famous. So I'm, I'm not quite sure where this skip is going to go. I think obviously the, the JetBrains team is keeping a very close eye on it. Uh, and the, the Arrow people and, and also some other contributors are uh, adding a lot of things to it. But uh, I'm not quite sure if in the end it's going to make it. But you know, the very fact that there is discussion and that no one has said no, no one has said yes, everybody is just exchanging technical arguments and posting proof of concepts and discussing corner cases means that if in the end it ends up being accepted or you know, maybe being pushed in the compiler as an extension or something like that, it will have been very, very thoroughly discussed. And, and I don't think there will be a lot of uh, uh, technical holes in the proposal. Yeah, and and to be clear, this is talking about uh, type classes, right? Um, and yes. I'll add the notes to to the show with the link to the keep. Okay, one last question that I have before we wrap up: collection literals, yes or no? <laughs> uh, firstly, I so. Uh, 
personally, I don't find them super useful. And on the other hand, I don't think there is a lot of harm in supporting them. Uh, so again, this is maybe a, another uninformed opinion, and I'm sure they, I haven't looked at the clip in a while, but I'm sure there are plenty of corner cases that would you know, disagree strongly with me and say, no, there are a lot of corner cases. Uh, but overall, it seems like it's pretty simple, but you know, the number of times where I have to put a, a literal collection in my code, well, it's pretty much only for test cases, which is the few times where you know, programming is simple enough that you know ahead of time what your collection is going to contain. So these are pretty rare. And for these cases where you know, I do want some literal in there, the, the current approach to me seems perfectly fine, you know, the array of list of and you know, mutable array, uh, mutable array of all these things is, is good enough for me. So I can't say I feel very strongly about it either way. Right. And I, I kind of feel like it goes against some of the things that we are, are trying to uh, have with the, the, you know, with the language principles that, that this is something really that should be always delegated to the library. Uh, but anyway, to each I, their own. I agree. Overall, you know, anything, if you have a choice between adding something to the language or, or it can be added as a library with very little loss in expressivity. Uh, by Make it the library. the library. Yeah, I like that rule of thumb. Well, very well put. Thank you. Awesome. Well, it's been great chatting to you. Uh, thank you again for taking the time to come on the show. It was a pleasure, Heidi. Thank you for having me back. Take care.